Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Alethea Fricotes by H.P. Lovecraft. This is first published in Weird Tales, July 1952, so uh, quite a few years after he died. He died in 1937. Um, this is not its first publication. Uh, it was first published in 1918 as part of a larger poem. And uh, it was composed in 1916. It's about 200 lines of uh, blank verse. And I want to talk a lot about the, um, the beginning and end that are not in this poem. But... Uh, which explain some of what's going on and who, the name of the narrator. And, or, yeah, yeah, the narrator. And uh, I want to do all that, and I want to talk about the uh, very interesting contents of the poem itself, but I need Eric to read it to me <laughs> first. Well, this is a poem that, uh, on rereading, becomes more and more compelling to me. Mm. And I had a lot that I was thinking about, but not, I think, the things that you're thinking about. So I want to read this without saying another word about it. Well, with one word about it and then get to hear what you want to add. The the thing I want to say about it is that um, it's I think it will help. Certainly one knows on any rereading that this is someone talking about some kind of voyage that eventually becomes an astral voyage uh, out of body and so on um think stapleton think dante uh, here we go alethea for cody omnia resus et omnis pulvis et omna nihil Demoniac clouds uppiled in chasmy reach of soundless heaven smothered the brooding night. Nor came the wanted whisperings of the swamp, nor the voice of autumn wind along the moor, nor muttered noises of the insomnious grove whose black recesses never saw the sun. Within that grove a hideous hollow lies, half bare of trees, a pool in center lurks that none dares sound, a tarn of murky face, though naught can prove its use, since light of day, affrighted, shuns the forest-shadowed banks. Hard by, a yawning hillside grotto breathes from deeps unvisited, a dull, dank air that sears the leaves on certain stunted trees which stand about, clawing the spectral gloom with evil boughs. To this accursed dell, some woodland creatures seldom to depart. Once I beheld upon a crumbling stone set altar-like before the cave a thing I saw not clearly, yet from glimpsing fled. In this half-dusk I meditate alone at many a weary noontide when without a world forgets me in its sun-blessed mirth. 
Here howl by night the werewolves and the souls of those that knew me well in other days. Yet on this night the grove spake not to me, nor spake the swamp, nor wind along the moor, nor groaned the wind about the lonely eaves of the bleak haunted pile wherein I lay. I was afraid to sleep or quench the spark of the low-burning taper by my couch. I was afraid when, through the vaulted space of the old tower, the clock ticks died away into the silence so profound and chill that my teeth chattered, giving yet no sound. Then flickered low the light and all dissolved, leaving me floating in the hellish grasp of bodied blackness from whose beating wings came ghoulish blasts of charnel-scented mist things vague unseen unfashioned and unnamed jostled each other in the seething void that gaped chaotic downward to a sea of speechless horror foul with writhing thoughts all this I felt, and felt the mocking eyes of the cursed universe upon my soul, yet naught I saw nor heard, till flashed a beam of lurid luster through the rotting heavens, playing on scenes I labored not to see. Methought the nameless tarn, a light at last reflected shapes and more revealed within those shocking depths that ne'er were seen before. Methought from out the cave a demon train, grinning and smirking, reeled in fiendish rout, bearing within their reeking paws a load of carrion viands for an impious feast. Methought the stunted trees with hungry arms groped greedily for things I dare not name the while a stifling wraith-like noisomeness filled all the dell and spoke a larger life of uncorporeal hideousness awake in the half-sentient wholeness of the spot now glowed the ground and tarn and cave and trees and moving forms and things not spoken of with such a phosphorescence as men glimpse in the putrescent thickets of the swamp where logs decaying lie and rankness reigns methought a fire mist draped with loosened fold the well-remembered features of the grove whilst whirling ether bore in eddying streams the hot unfinished stuff of nascent worlds hither and thither through infinity of light and darkness strangely intermissed wherein all eternity had consciousness without the accustomed outward shape of life with these swift circling currents was my soul free from the flesh, a true constituent part, nor felt I less myself for want of form, then cleared the mist, and o'er a star-strown scene divine and measureless, I gazed in awe alone in space. I viewed a feeble fleck of silver and light, marking the narrow ken which mortals call the boundless universe." On every side, each as a tiny star, shone more creations vaster than our own, and teeming with unnumbered forms of life, though we as life would recognize it not. 
being bound to earthly thoughts of human moles, as on a moonless night the Milky Way in solid sheen displays its countless orbs to weak terrestrial eyes, each orb a sun, so beamed the prospect on my wandering soul, a spangled universe rich with gleaming gems, yet each a mighty universe of suns. But as I gazed, I sensed a spirit voice in speech didactic, though no voice it was, save as it carried thought it bade me mark that all the universes in my view formed but an atom in infinity whose reaches past the ether laden realms of heat and light extending to far fields where flourish worlds invisible and vague filled with strange wisdom and uncanny light and yet beyond to myriad spheres of light to spheres of darkness to a abysmal voids that know the pulses of disordered force. Big with these musings, I surveyed the surge of boundless being, yet I used not eyes, for spirit leans not on the props of sense. The docent presence swelled my strength of soul, all things I knew, but knew with mind alone. Time's endless vista spread before my thought with its vast pageant of unceasing change and sempaternal strife of force and will. I saw the ages flow in stately stream, past rise and fall of universe and life. I saw the birth of suns and worlds, their death, their transmutation into limpid flame, their second birth and second death, their course perpetual through the eons, termless flight, never the same, yet born again to serve the varying purpose of omnipotence. And whilst I watched, I knew each second space was greater than the lifetime of our world, then turned my musings to that speck of dust whereon my form corporeal took its rise, that speck born but a second which must die in one brief second more, that fragile earth, that crude experiment, that cosmic sport which holds our proud aspiring race of mites, whom ignorance in empty pomp adorns and misinstructs in specious dignity. Those mites who, reasoning outworn, vaunt themselves as the chief work of nature and enjoy in fatuous fancy the particular care of all her mystic superregnant power. And as I strove to vision the sad sphere which lurked, lost in ethereal vortices, methought my soul turned to the infinite, refused to glimpse that poor atomic blight, that misbegotten accident of space, that globe of insignificance, whereupon, my guide celestial told me, dwells no part of imperial virtue, but where breed the coarse corruptions of divine disease, the festering ailments of infinity, the morbid matters by itself called man. Such matter, said my guide, as oft breaks forth on broad creation's fabric to annoy for a brief instant ere assuaging death heal up the malady its birth provoked. Sickened, I turned my heavy thoughts away, then spake the eternal guide with mocking mien, upbraiding me for searching after truth, visiting on my mind the searing scorn of mind's superior law, 
at the woe which rent the vital essence of my soul. Methought he brought remembrance of the time when my fellows to the grove I strayed in solitude and dusk to meditate on things forbidden and to pierce the veil of seeming good and seeming beauteousness that covers o'er the tragedy of truth, helping mankind forget his sorry lot and raising hope where truth would crush it down. He spake and he ceased. Methought the flames of fuming heaven revolved in torments dire, whirling in maelstroms of rebellious might, yet ever bound by laws I fathomed not. Cycles and epicycles of such girth that each a cosmos seemed dazzled my gaze till all a wild phantasmal glow became. Now burst athwart the fulgent formlessness, a rift of purer sheen, a sight supernal broader than all the void conceived by man, yet narrow here, a glimpse of heavens beyond of weird creations so remote and great that even my guide assumed a tone of awe, born on the wings of stark immensity. A touch of rhythm celestial reached my soul, thrilling me more with horror than with joy. Again the spirit mocked my human pangs, and deep reviling me for presumptuous thoughts. Yet changing now his mien, he bade me scan the widening rift that claved the walls of space. He bade me search it for the ultimate. He bade me find the truth I sought so long. He bade me brave the unutterable thing, the final truth of moving entity. All this he bade, but my soul, clinging to live, fled without aim or knowledge, shrieking in silence through the gibbering deeps. Wow. This is a poem that requires multiple readings. Um, I encourage all our listeners to download the PDF and witness it for themselves. It also includes some amazing illustrations that accompany it um, that help illustrate some of the imagery in the poem. But uh, I... Uh, there's so much to say about this. Uh, one thing I want to do a little bit is just explain that there is a larger poem called The Poet's Nightmare, which was how it was first published uh, in The Vagrant, July 1918. And The Poet's Nightmare is spelled P-O-E-E-T apostrophe S. So this is a reference to Edgar Allan Poe. Um, but... Uh, Unlike Aletheia Fricotes, which is the central element of the poet's nightmare, um, the outer frame uh, is a comedy, uh, a very, very funny comedy. Um, this is similar to something that happened with another po uh, podcast and poem we've done by H.P. Lovecraft from the same year, written in the same year, 1916. There's a poem called Anda or the Bride of the Sea, which is a beautiful poem um, about uh, uh, almost mermaid relationship um, with a heroic protagonist. And um, that one has a frame as well, which is a, co a comedic thing. In later correspondence with uh, his literary executor, not his actual executor, but the guy who he wanted to have it executed, that is R.H. Barlow, 
Um, he said, yeah, we don't need those uh, frames. Um, I don't like them. <laughs> so he, he wanted it to appear this way. And so appearing as it does in Weird Tales, uh, several more than a decade after he died, um, we're seeing it in perhaps the ultimate form that H.P. Lovecraft would like to have seen it. But it's interesting because although it's never stated in the poem itself, the frame gives us the character's name is Lucullus, um, or Lucullus, and the guide who is alluded to in here is probably Edgar Allan Poe himself, or the ghost thereof. This is important to um, what I think this poem is centrally about, which is uh, relating Lovecraft's philosophy with regards to uh, our relationship to the universe, uh, usually called cosmicism. Um, this poem is, it's not about an actual journey necessarily, as it is about what uh, imagining the size of the universe does to a person. And that's what we see in this astrally projected poem. Uh, someone has called it a, a dream journey through the universe. I think that's correct. Um, but it also, it it's it's important because that outer frame is very very com comedic it's 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 jokey this internal stuff is not and i think that jokiness is a reaction to the horror of finding yourself uh, a mite m i t e um on a uh world that is very mortal and in a universe that is seemingly immortal so there's a lot going on there, uh, but it, it's an uh, it's an incredibly powerful poem. And I know this, Eric, because I was looking at my notes, and I actually know the first time I read this to you, uh, the date. <laughs> um, it was uh, July, uh, June 29th, 2013. Uh, wow. And we both agreed that it was uh, heavily influenced by Edgar Allan Poe. And that is outside of uh, knowing the context of the, <laughs> the poet's nightmare. Um, this is what I wrote. Um, I mentioned one of the differences between Poe and Lovecraft's poetry was that the love of a woman, a.k.a. Annabelle Lee and The Raven, for example, Lovecraft's poems, I said, unlike most of Poe's po famous poems, significantly lack women. Eric pointed out that the loved one is in Lovecraft, but it isn't a woman. Uh, and it is the book. And he made the point uh, of reading a poem from Fungi from Yaga's sequence called Pursuit. And that is absolutely correct. And um, I think it's interesting. This is three years before we started the podcast. Uh, <laughs> in 2013, um, we started in 2016. And here we are in 2022 talking about a poem that we clearly needed to do for reading Short and Deep. I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, uh, all that you say about this is, uh, is I think, correct. I, I, one thing that strikes me as uh, from, a, from a psychological and theoretical point of view, um, complicated. As I read this poem again, I see Dante in the background. Mm. And I see Stapleton in the in the forward view. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, and of course, anyone who's read um, Star Maker 
well, not anyone, people who read Starmaker are invited to see the degree to which uh, Stapleton's great novel of astral projection, in which goes, you know, we, we get smaller and smaller and smaller and the viewpoint characters are utterly disembodied. And, you know, um, this is that. But Stapleton is echoing Dante. Stapleton's character goes out on a hillside. He sees his wife's, his home and his wife down below him as he walks out. And then he has a guide and he gets to where he's going. That That's in the future. If you've read Stapleton and you read this, it's astonishing how much this is alike. And yet Stapleton ends when his character wakes up uh, knowing that it has been wondrous to be a human being. Um, whereas here, it's quite the opposite. Dante has a guide. Um, he is guided through the Inferno and Purgatory, Purgatorio in Italian, uh, through Purgatory by an earlier poet, Virgil. Mm-hmm. And now you're telling me that, in fact, and Lucullus is a, is a Roman poet, mm-hmm. uh, now you're telling me that... Um, that this guy, the speaker of uh, this Lovecraft poem, is being guided by another poet, and this is the poet's uh, mm-hmm. comedy. Mm-hmm. But this isn't a comedy. No. Po- Poe's people do not wake up and find that they can f- enjoy life. They wake up and find they are utterly bereft for the rest of their lives, at least in the the best known of most of his stories. Um, and here uh, we find that our guy shrinks, shrieking from that truth, that the more he's able to expand his consciousness, his consciousness, the more, in effect, he is being bidden, he is bade to search for this, to look for the ultimate. And as he gets the possibility of glimpsing it, it shocks him into shrieking silence, a wonderful oxymoron, mm. through the gibbering deeps. Now, I noticed that that the gibbering deeps, the deeps don't gibber. Nope. Right? This, is, this is the pathetic fallacy, as it's known to the new critics. It's what the romantic poets do again and again. I wandered lonely as a cloud, right? Mm-hmm. The fellow, you know, Wordsworth has somebody see nature. And then later in its contemplation, he finds great solace. But here we have exactly the opposite. I come to this this place in the woods, this tarn. It, no daylight gets in there. He begins by telling us what he saw, and he never, in fact, gets to contemplate it in tranquility and find solace from it. It reminds him of how he is bound to his fleshly body and his foolish pride in believing that human beings, including himself, are of any value. And knowing how inevitably small we are against this infinity, the deeps gibber because in contemplation of the deep, he is reduced to gibbering. This is the romantic fallacy throughout, uh, excuse me, the pathetic fallacy throughout, as the romantics would have it. But it is not one that feeds our soul. It's one that recognizes how terrible our soul is. Hence, 
Aletheia Phrocoides, which translates to frightful truth. Mm-hmm. And the, the epigraph, omnia resus et omnia pulvis et omnia nihil, is all is laughter and all is powder mm-hmm. and all is nothing. Yep. It's very dark. Which is why when you put it in the in the original frame, it, it is less powerful. Um, here, it is a distillation of, of a certain aspect of H.P. Lovecraft's, the, the, sort of the common idea of Cthulhu and all the stuff that people think of when they think of sort of the pop culture version of Lovecraft. This is the distillation of that idea. But on, on, on the outer frame... And this is something almost nobody recognizes about H.P. Lovecraft is he has a, an amazing, funny sense of humor. It is not present in the in the central poem. It is only present in the external. But that is kind of the, that humor feeding this. Uh, it's funny you mentioned feeding the soul because a lot of the humor on the outer uh, in the poet's nightmare is about what food the, the character enjoys, and some of that food is is Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, the poems, and some of it is mince pies, right? It's very mm. light. And when you're talking about uh, food, and it's in a, um, what's this called? Uh, so the central part is blank uh, blank verse, and the outer is heroic couplets. It, it, mm. So right after the end here, I'm just going to read the last two lines of the the poem you just read, Aletheia Fricotes, it says, clinging to life, fled without aim or knowledge, shrieking in silence through uh, the gibbering deeps. So that's the blank verse. And then we have a space. And then the the rest of the poet's nightmare would continue. Thus shrieked the young Lucillus as he fled through the gibbering deeps and tumbled out of bed. It's You can see it's it's that comedy uh, that... that um, uh, Gulliver's Travels author, Jonathan Swift is the expert at, right? The um, heroic couplets um, about food and silliness, uh, over-drinking, that sort of thing. The next two lines, Within the room the morning sunshine gleams whilst the poor young youth recalls his troubled dreams. So he turns it all into a central dream and he, then he says he resolves not to read so much Poe, right? It's very um, undercutting the central darkness of this uh, uh, astonishing poem. Aletheia Fricotes is H.P. Lovecraft at the maximal and uh, arguably one of his very best poems, if not his best poem, um, in my view. It's, a, it, I think it's, it's astonishing. It is, it is very powerful, very powerful. Lovecraft writes poesque kind of stuff, and we've always known that. It's a, it's a truism of the criticism. I, I think it's worth remembering that while in Annabelle Lee, you know, the, the, the speaker has lost his love forever, and uh, in premature burial, I mean, things happen. The word tarn, I first mm-hmm. learned as a youngster, as the description of the lake in which the 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 castle, which is the house of Usher, mm-hmm. is reflected as the the narrator rides up to it on its horse, and at the end, the castle and its mirror image collapse into each other in the tarn as the narrator rides away after the destruction, the fall of the house of Usher. That's what tarns are. This is a Poe esque 
story, a poem. But I think it's worth remembering that Poe, even Poe, sometimes gives us a little lightness. So at the end of The Pit and the Pendulum, which looks like it is inexorably leading to the utter destruction of its main character in the hands of the Spanish Inquisition, at the end, a Protestant general, you know, scatters the tormentors and a hand reaches down and pulls the title, the, the main character, out of the pit. He is redeemed, right? It does happen every now and then um, that, in fact, something gets the guy back and he gets to rejoin the world. Um, it's unusual in Poe, but he has that frame. And I can't help but wonder if someone as committed to Poe's viewpoint um, somehow needs to allow the possibility that you can get out of this. Because when you call this perhaps Lovecraft's greatest poem, I think that it in fact crystallizes the utter horror of the infinitesimal existence of human beings mm -hmm. in relation to all the unseen, unfelt, unknown, the frightful truth. Mm. The universe goes on infinitely, and we mortals are, by definition, finite. It's not for the universe. It doesn't care about us. Mm -hmm. But we think that we need to justify this. This is a case in which I think the editor was right. I agree with you fully, Jesse, that although you can add more words, sometimes you need to ask whether or not you should indulge yourself in recognizing that there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.